Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 122. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And welcome to 2021. We made it. We're here. And what better way to kick off the start of the new year than to discuss the newest, the shiniest Disney Pixar collaboration, Soul. This one was released direct onto Disney Plus on Christmas Day. Uh, originally, this was supposed to be released in June. Then it got pushed to November. And then once it was clear that a theatrical release was not likely to happen this year, they pushed it to Christmas Day. And what I really loved about this was that it was included in your regular Disney Plus subscription. Yes, well done, Disney. This was not considered to be premium content. We didn't have to pay the extra $30. Um, were you surprised that this one got pushed to Disney Plus? Are you surprised that they didn't hold it for a theatrical release in maybe 2021? I know everything's getting kind of pushed back, but you would think something like this that does cost a lot of money to make, seeing as they already did it with Mulan, that they would have tried to recuperate at least some box office. Well, as much as I would love to believe that Disney just did this out of the goodness of their hearts and gave us a Christmas present, um, I do believe that it was sort of a calculated move because there was no big theatrical release on Christmas Day. I mean, when you think about what the past two years have been with Christmas releases, it was Mary Poppins Returns, yep. which was promoted for so long, and it was a huge release, and it was very highly anticipated. And then we had a Star Wars year. So they didn't obviously have a big box office film. Um and I think because they tried to use Mulan to recoup, this was a smart move to give us some content, give us a story that people were very interested in, give us something to watch on Christmas Day other than the, I don't want to call it a parade because it wasn't a parade, but the, you know, the Christmas morning special. Right. Which actually was very good. And I mean, it, it was. They did an excellent job with that. But... I don't think that Disney is going to utilize any of the because I don't want to say that Soul is not a big blockbuster film. It's a Pixar film. Of course, it's going to be. But I don't think they're going to do any of the live action remakes or any of the Marvel sequels that they're going to release straight to Disney Plus because that's where they're going to make up the box office numbers because they have the built in audience. Sure. So I want to get right into the plot here. Now, I know this movie just came out, so if you're new to the podcast, welcome, but we are about to spoil it. If you are a longtime listener, obviously, if you didn't want the movie spoiled, you wouldn't be listening to it right now. But here is the plot for Soul. Joe Gardner is a middle school band teacher who is finally offered a full-time job at his school, but he dreams of more. When former student Curly offers Joe an opportunity to join him... In playing with Dorothea Williams, Joe jumps at the chance. While celebrating his perfect audition, he falls through a manhole cover and dies. But his soul starts moving towards the great beyond while his body is still here on the earth. Unwilling to give up, Joe runs off and finds himself at the You Seminar or 
otherwise known as the Great Before. Joe learns that this is where personalities come from, and that once a personality is formed, they move to Earth through a portal. When Terry, the accountant, realizes a soul is missing from the Great Beyond, he sets off to find Joe and retrieve him. Joe poses as a mentor at the youth seminar to buy himself time and learns that the last thing a personality needs before heading to Earth is its spark. He decides to help a soul find its spark, then steal its pass back to Earth. This is his way of getting back to his humanly form. He is matched with soul number 22, who is rebellious and refuses to find a spark and go to Earth. 22 agrees to give Joe her Earth badge so she can avoid going to Earth in exchange for him going. So she doesn't want to go to Earth because she's living a great life in the great before, and she's a very jaded kind of personality and doesn't want to really experience Earth for what it is. So that's the trade-off. She'll find the spark, give him the pass, down he goes. When she's unable to find a spark, they run off into quote-unquote, the zone, the space between the physical and the spiritual. You know, there's always that saying, oh, they're in the zone, and supposedly this is where you go. They meet Moonwind, a free spirit who helps lost souls find their way home. We also learn that Moonwind's physical being is in New York while his soul is in the zone. When they locate Joe's body, he rushes the process, and his soul ends up in the body of a therapy cat that is sitting at his bedside, while 22 ends up in Joe's body. They escape the hospital to find Moonwind's physical body to try and fix this mistake. He tells them that there will be another chance to swap them out and get them into the proper bodies, and he agrees to meet them at the Half Note, which is the club he's going to perform at, at 6.30. While still in his hospital gown, Joe runs into Dorothea, and she freaks out and offers the position uh, of musician in her band to another person. Curly later calls and tells Joe to get to the club early and to look like a million dollars in the hopes that she will change her mind. They suit Joe up, get him a haircut, and set off to fix this mistake. However, Joe's pants split, so he's forced to go to the only tailor shop that is open. It's his mother's shop, much to his dismay. She at first refuses to fix the suit because she is upset that he took the gig over the job offer at the school because his father was a career musician and... They always had her tailor shop to fall back on, and she was afraid that Joe would never have that thing to fall back on. So she hasn't really ever supported his dreams of being a career musician. After Joe explains that this is his reason for living, his mom fits Joe in his father's old suit that he used to wear on stage. They arrive at the Blue Note. However, 22 has seen the joy of living and is set on finding her purpose and runs off, only to be caught by Terry, the accountant. They are brought back to the U Seminar, and they see that 22 has gotten her Earth Pass. She angrily gives her pass to Joe, and then she disappears. Joe heads back to Earth and makes it to the club in time to play with Dorothea Williams, whom officially welcomes him into the band. Joe is looking for something more. You know, this is sort of like what he always wanted in life, and it's not quite what he had hoped that it would be. So he starts contemplating his life's meaning, and he heads home. He begins to play his piano, and he self-reflects. He cries knowing that he is playing his swan song. 
He enters the zone and finds out that 22 is now a lost soul, so he and Moonwind go after her. After showing her a relic from Earth, 22 finds that she is no longer lost and is ready to live. Joe gives her her past back and sends her to Earth. Joe starts heading towards the great beyond, knowing that he's going to give her a chance to live, but is given a second chance by the Jerrys, who we will dis- we'll discuss them later on. Because they're kind of like this other earthly, worldly being that you can really only see in the great before or the great beyond. And they send him home for a second chance. And then the movie ends. It, it ends kind of quickly, but that is in short order the plot for soul. I would like to start off by addressing the elephant in the room because I feel like this movie is getting the bad rap for not feeling like a Pixar film. And while I understand where people are coming from, because we're coming off of things like, I mean, if you go back to the origins, like toy story, it's insanely relatable because it's about growing pains and they do it again with Inside Out, which is absolutely amazing and I think can appeal to everyone. Um, Or, you know, even something like Ratatouille. It's about finding yourself. And I think that's what people love about Pixar films is that it was such a departure from the typical Disney fairy tales and it really focuses on finding your own hero and what makes you tick and what makes you happy. I think that that's what people were sort of expecting here. And that's exactly what this film is. But I think they were putting too much pressure on it to sort of explain death and make it easy to understand for children. And we sort of saw that with Coco because Miguel gets to go to the other side and we learn the importance of keeping your family tradition and your family memories alive. And I think that that's what everyone was expecting here was to give kids something that was very easily digestible and make it an entertaining way to learn about something that's very hard to accept. And instead, what we got is a slice of life movie that is geared towards adults and trying to appeal to children instead of being geared at the children. And I think that that's the biggest gripe with this film for the people who don't like it. And I think that that's something that's very important to keep in mind as we're sort of breaking it down. And if you have seen it, if you're going to give it a second chance. Yeah, I think that what Pixar does, you you hit the nail on the head. What they do at times better than Disney animated studio or Disney animation studios is a study of the human condition. Yes. And you're right. This is not I don't want to give I don't want to give you the wrong in, interpretation here, but this really is not a movie for kids. The language, not that it's R-rated, but I I noticed that the movie was rated PG instead of G and I thought gee, that's kind of interesting for a Disney Pixar film. Um, the language is a little bit more adult-oriented. Certainly, the subject matter is more adult-oriented. A six-year-old kid is going to appreciate the buddy film of Toy Story. A six-year-old kid, while understanding and being taught the heavy subject matter of death in Coco, 
they still laugh at Dante. They still laugh at some of the uh, slapstick comedy and the way that they kind of use the skeletons and the bones to. They they just they're very funny about it. A six year old kid is gonna see a cat talking, and I feel like that's about as far as the funny goes. And right. hearing Tina Fey's voice coming out of Jamie Foxx's body. I think that's where the funny ends for children. So I think you're right. A kid is not going to connect with this the same way that they would one of those other films. Exactly. And I think the expectation was, great, Pixar is going to make death fun and understandable. And instead, I feel like this film almost creeps into the realm of addressing mental health and checking in with yourself and, like you said, exploring the human condition and breaking down what your purpose is and what actually makes you happy. And that's what we're going to talk about. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. Like, we're going to talk about this film, but I kind of feel like me reading the plot, the movie is what the movie is. And that's not to downplay it, but we can sit there and we can break it down a hundred different ways. But I think given the subject matter, given, like you said, uh, at times addressing the mental health, I think is what they were going for here. And certainly addressing that look in the mirror, you know, that the people struggle with that, right? Like, what is my purpose in life? Have I made the right decisions? What are my regrets? Where did I make mistakes? The, the, Pixar can do a better job of putting this in front of you and explaining it to you, they do it better than I can. And it's not for me to do because every person is different and it can be interpreted 150,000 different ways, which in a way I think is what the brilliance of this movie is. Like, I'm surprised. You know, usually we sit, we watch the movie a few times, we jot down notes, and there are some movies where I just go on for pages with notes and notes and notes and notes and notes. I don't even have a full page on this. You know what I'm saying? And like, that's, that's strange for us. But it is one of those movies that it can be taken so many different ways depending on the viewer. And I think that is what makes this film so unique. Right. Because to me, this could be the sequel to any Disney movie. is Because it, it poses the question, what happens after your dream comes true? And how do you feel after that? There was a great movie... Actually, I think it might have been the last film that Jason Siegel has done for a while called End of the Tour, where he plays David Foster Wallace and he had just done his massive book tour. And in real life, that ends in tragedy. And um, this was coming off of Jason Siegel's Muppets. And he said that he really was able to get into the character because it's like what happens after you have this massive commercial success is that you still have to wake up the next day and be you. And I really like that Pixar, I mean, they've already broken out of the fairy tale mode again and again and again, and we've seen it. But it's just such an interesting way of examining a story and really taking us in a different direction than anything we've ever seen from Disney. So I think it's important to talk about what this movie is instead of what it's not. And because I think that's what a lot of people are fo focused on is what they wanted it to be. And 
you know, it's just a look in the mirror and that's what's making people uncomfortable. But right. it should. Right. That's it, a good it, thing. Yes. It, it should. And, and, and you're right. That's why I think people wanted they wanted Coco Dose. They wanted Coco 2. And if they were going to do that, then they would just do that. That's what this movie was not going to do. And you're right. It made people uncomfortable because people by nature are not comfortable with self-reflection. What this movie does brilliantly is at first you see, you know, Joe Gardner's trying to get something more and he gets cheated out of that opportunity. Okay, we've seen this a thousand times. And then usually the main character bounces back and that's that's what the story follows is how they climb back up the mountain after they've been knocked down. Right. Obviously, knowing what I know now, my opinion was vastly different at the end of the movie than it was in the beginning of the film because in the beginning you're like, okay, what is so unique about this? Mm -hmm. Because we've seen it so many times. And obviously the way that they weave in and out of certain things and then by the time you do get to the end of the film, it is such a mind bender. But not in a tearjerker sort of way. Like I expected, you know, like the end of Coco, you sit there and you're sobbing. I expected that to happen here, and it doesn't. But that's not a bad thing. I think that's very much a good thing. Same. And instead of crying over it, it's just been sitting with me for a few days, and I keep thinking of new things, and I keep mulling it over. And I do. I did start to ask myself the questions after that, and I think that's the success of this film. Right, because when the movie starts, like I said, you have Joe, and Joe is... Very, very good at what he does. And he's got so much passion for it, and he wants more. I mean, I think for the most part, you know, until you reach the pinnacle of your career, that's something that we all have struggled with, and, and for a lot of us, still struggle with. And for a lot of us, are going to struggle with it for a long time. Uh, it takes that hard work and dedication to get there, so right out of the gate, here comes Pixar making it relatable. Exactly. The only place where I find it not relatable, I get that we have to have an older character with Joe because he does have to have those years of experience behind him. And we have to see how long that he's just had this his tunnel vision on his dream mm -hmm, and right. and how much he has strived for it. Um, but where that sort of takes me out of it is when we meet his mother. I feel like she he's far too old for her to have that much of a voice and a say in what he's doing with his career. And they do cover it by eventually saying that, you know, she was the breadwinner and she had to support his father while his father was chasing his dream. But at the same time, she's getting on his case about all this gigging. It's not interfering with his regular job as a teacher. And I feel like that's very unrelatable to today's audience because almost everyone has a side hustle. So if he chooses to spend his Saturday night playing piano and getting paid for it, yeah, what give me a break. What difference does it make? <laughs> like, what do you care? Right, especially when your husband did it. So if he's if he's doing this thing, even if it's part-time at the school and he's doing part-time with the band, but her whole thing was have a retirement plan, have a this, have a that. And we have all heard this a hundred times right. in the last week because we're just coming off the holidays. Forget about a lifetime. Um, 
So like that, that's that's the thing. Like I agree with you that at his age, because they never come out and say how old he is. But I assume that he got a little salt and pepper. Forty in his forties, at least. Fair, I think. I mean, at that point, it's it's not like talking about another Jason Siegel movie. It's not like Jeff who lives at home where it's like, oh my God, my loser son in the basement. He's never going to get his life together. You know what I'm saying? If there's, there's now, th- he's on his own. He's self-sufficient and he is an adult that is starting to succeed in his craft. The fact that mommy has that much pull over him, it's, I buy it. I buy it even into your 30s, and then after that, you just got to give it up. Right, and she's acting like he never moved out, which is not the case. But I see where it's relatable, and I understand where they're coming from with her being on his case and get a pension and get a real job and blah, 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 because, like I said, a lot of us hear that all the time. A lot of us are still hearing that. So it is relatable it, it makes sense but i feel like they made him too old for it to really carry its own weight right and i feel like that's where they were just trying to create a conflict for conflict's sake because otherwise if he's happy balancing his part-time job with the gigging and that is something that he enjoys and that's what's working for him you lose your entire story that way because he's just going to be cool living that status quo. Right. Then when he does get the invitation to play with Dorothea Williams, it's one of his former students that reaches out to him to play. And they make sure to tell you that the reason why the student called him is because the student would not have kept up with music. He would not have even finished school if it had not been for Joe. So I love the fact that they angle in this direction. I love the fact that you get a lot of Joe's backstory through the dialogue of another character, through the actions of another character. I think it works to flesh him out better because 90% of this movie, he's not in his human form. So you need to give him backstory somehow. The flip side of this is this curly is now at least in his 20s. You would imagine that Joe has been a part-time band teacher in a middle school for, I mean, what, almost 15 years? At least 10. Yeah. I don't know many schools, and maybe I'm naive, I don't know many schools that have a part-time staff member running a band for that long. That kind of seems like a staff position. I think what they alluded to and could have done a better job of developing a little bit was that this is probably a lower income school. Um, And that's something that I think maybe we take for granted a little bit because music was or or band uh, that was always an elective for us. Yeah, it was never mandatory, but I feel like you know, in other places, the music and the arts are the first thing to get cut when when they need to save on the budget. So I think that that might have been something that was worth exploring a little bit. I also think to touch on what you said about the phone call with Curly, I think that that did a better job of giving us the backstory than 
Joe telling his class the moment he fell in love with jazz. I mean, I like that they it also establishes that the kids are not really relating to him except for the one girl, Connie, who plays the trombone. Yeah. Um, so it sets up that he feels his day to day is very mundane. But I would have liked to have spent a little bit more time with Joe for a day in the life so that we have a little bit more of a reason for him to want to go back. And they do address that because 22 eventually calls him on it. And she was like, your life is kind of blah. And that's what makes her interested because, you know, she doesn't see that he had much worth living for. And yet he wants to get back so bad, which I do think is a great conflict between the two of them. And I think that's a great theme to explore. But I think just as the audience, we needed a little bit more of a reason to root for the character. What's fascinating is that this all happens before the title card comes up. Yeah. We get Joe's entire day before he passes or before he... Falls down the uh, down the manhole. Yeah, I don't want to say die because he he is in the hospital. He's He's critically injured. His soul hasn't passed to the great beyond, so therefore he's not dead yet he's i would say he's comatose yes if we have to call so the entire time leading up to this happens before we get the the title card so it does feel long already and i get that's why we didn't really spend more time there but that that's got to be the longest intro we've ever seen yeah it was a very very long introduction but once we get through all of that and now we are into the great beyond um and the great before I love that all of these other souls, you have the one woman that's 106, and then you have the other person. He's like, why are you going to the light? And he's just like, I don't know. It's just, I guess I got to go. It's just what I got to do. Nobody else is fighting it but him. And he gets so frustrated over it. Um, and he's scared. He's panicked. I actually thought this was a really good way to come out of that title card and kick off the rest of the movie. Absolutely. And I think it's also a really nice way to cover that no matter what you believe in and no matter what religion you follow, everybody's still believing in the same thing. And and more importantly, they're they're just accepting it and they're ready to move on to whatever comes next. And you're right. I think this is where the character does start to develop a little bit because he's fighting it. He's the only one that's fighting it. I love this idea that the great beyond and the great before exist in the same plane. Um, And I really think that they had some fun with this here where they allude to all of these historical figures that have passed on. This is one of my favorite parts of the movie. I wanted so much more of this. Yeah, because it's 22, right? 22, they keep giving her these mentors. Muhammad Ali, Mother Teresa. She made her cry. Abraham Lincoln. It's so funny because every single... Gal- what'd she get? Gal- not Galileo. Archimedes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, every single mentor she gets, she just seems to sabotage the relationship and sabotage her chances one after another after another. And it's done so funny. But I love the fact that they take these legends because we all know who they are. And to see Mother Teresa with the rosary beads in her hand say, I love everybody except you. I hate you. (laughs) No, and it's so brilliant because these are people and we worship these people because they've achieved such great things. But 
the whole point it, it drives the point home that she's never had a life this isn't reincarnation it's that she's never had anything she has no attachment to these people whatsoever so i think that's a really good setup for 22 yeah i love the fact that he basically steals the doctor's identity because it's supposed yes. to be a child psychologist that's mentoring him. Remember, Joe's not supposed to be here. He runs off and he falls. I don't know if you want to call it a bridge or what you want to call it from the great beyond. He falls off of it and that's how he ends up in the great before. Right. And he just grabs a hi, my name is such and such sticker and slaps it on his chest so that he can buy himself time and eventually uh, accomplish this goal of stealing the Earth Pass or the Earth Badge to go back. I love that he does it, and I love that they made it a child psychologist. And when he's trying, when he's telling 22 the truth about what his intentions are, she just assumes that it's reverse psychology and, and that they've seen it a hundred times. No, and it's so brilliant, too, because all of these other beings, they're, they're not the mentors. These are the, the Terry's and the Jerry's. Yes. Uh they're, they want 22 out. They, they're they putting all of their faith that a child psychologist is going to be the one to finally crack the code on her and get her out of their hair. And I I, it, I don't know why, but it was funny to me that they were all named Ter- uh, Jerry. Every single being other than Terry was named Jerry. I loved that. I thought that that was so funny. Yeah. And I, I love the fact that they said, yeah, we're kind of this... Um, otherworldly thing that you can't see with your own eyes so we take this very bizarre form here so that your very uh your very primitive mind has something that they can look at and we've taken form so that you understand what we are because we're bigger and greater than what you can actually see and they're so judgy it's hysterical i mean they should be though right that makes sense to me right um i also love the idea of the hall of you where when they're trying to get 22 her spark this is where joe exposes that he's not actually the the child psychologist and he's he's just joe um so i love that it plays out like a museum like that is such a pixar thing to do to break down your life as these moments that you can revisit. And again, I wanted to spend more time here because I thought that that was so cool. Uh, Very much like Inside Out, where they have all of Riley's uh, memories compartmentalized. But what I love that they did here is that when it's juxtaposed against the psychologist versus Joe, it's not just a highlight reel of your greatest accomplishments. Because I think that's what everyone expects it to be, is a look back on their best achievements. But really, it's a look at what gave your life meaning. And that's why there's such a stark contrast when we look at Joe's life. And it's sort of harsh in terms of visual because you see him getting rejected and getting rejected and getting rejected and eating pecan pie by himself and watching TV. And that's the first time he goes, my life was meaningless. Even just the color. The the psychologist's life glows and it's this beautiful like golden light very amber yes and then joe's is blue yeah very cool monotone colors which does sort of work with the whole jazz club thing and how he identifies himself but as far as the emotions it's it's making us feel sad for him and then he's so quiet when he was like my life is meaningless jamie fox delivers that line brilliantly jamie fox is perfect in everything Oh, and that's God. that that rings true in this film as well, just as Tina Fey, because 
Tina Fey plays 22, and she is just spot on. She's funny in almost everything that she does. Um, and I say almost because there were some times on SNL where I was like, okay, she's doing the Tina Fey thing again. But I feel like she's got so much more range than what you assume. She's like Anna Faris. For the longest time, it was, ah, you know, it was just what Anna <laughs> Faris was. And then you see her go off and do a show like Mom, and it's like, no, she's playing a recovering addict, and she's very funny, but she's got a broader range than what she was. And she was typecast. And yes. I feel like a lot of the times that was happening to Tina Fey, but we know she's a brilliant writer. Putting her in this movie I thought was great because whereas Jamie Foxx plays this morose sort of individual she comes in with the snark and the snark is so good and it kind of like lifts the scene up a little bit and they play very well off of each other and it that's where the film should take itself way too seriously but she lightens the feel a little bit I also think they created the perfect balance because she has the snark but she can't have too much personality because she doesn't have it yet you don't have your earthly body and you're putting together what makes you you so she can't be that fully developed. Yeah, she's basically she's basically got the personality of a blank stare. But it works. It works so well. My favorite my favorite line here as they're going into the hall of you and what is it the pavilion of everything or the hall of everything whatever it was. Mm -hmm. Um I love when she says you can't crush a soul here. That's what earth is Ugh, for. I love it. I love it. That's As, probably my favorite line in the movie. It's my, f it's one of my favorite lines of the movie. Well, not the line. My favorite moment. One of my favorite moments. Oh, it wasn't when they trolled the New York Knicks because that was oh my glorious. God. When when you see the basketball player when they go into the zone and she goes, "Hang on, I've been messing with this team for decades." I, I kind of thought that I was turned it. to you and I said, <laughs> "Please tell me this is the Knicks." And it delivered. It delivered. It was. It was the Knicks. And I think as a sports fan and as a long-suffering Knicks fan, this is what made me laugh the hardest in this entire film. But it's still relatable, even though, I, I mean, that's the thing. This takes place in New York, so of course they went with a New York team, but it really could have been, well, the Jets are also a New York team. That was going to be my other, my other comparison, but it's relatable to anyone. Um, I really like that idea too that they didn't just go for the great beyond and the great before but they did introduce the spirituality element um and i love that they balance the zone that you get into because everybody does it right either either you zone out because you're spacing or you're you're so focused you zone in uh so i thought that that was a really relatable element to have here but I also love that it's juxtaposed against the lost souls and that they're sort of running around the same plane as of people that are really happy when they get in their zone and in their moment and people who have had such tunnel vision almost kind of where Joe was going where you're focused so much on your dream you lose sight of everything else yeah I love that angle with the lost souls I love the fact that they're in the zone has become such a commonly used phrase, but nobody knows what the hell it is. So put it in the hands of Pixar and they made it a physical place. Exactly. And that's what Pixar does so well. Coming out of this, though, um, I love the whole idea that you've got Moonwind 
and this like total free spirit and they can sort of uh, manipulate souls the way that they want in terms of getting them out of being in the zone, out of being a lost soul and kind of giving them that breath of fresh air. I love that Joe rushes this process and that he's just he just wants to get back into his body so bad. And it is very funny when he gets swapped out with Mr. Whiskers or Mr. Mittens. Mittens, yeah. Um, and he ends up in the cat and 22 ends up in him. This this is where I think the movie this is where the this is where the funny is in the movie. Yeah, this is this is the kids part. This is where you get your more traditional Pixar. I was not expecting this at all. Like when you saw the trailer of this film, I mean, they really didn't give you much. It's just Joe's life. And we know he gets his big break and he goes into the manhole. So I had no idea that we were going to see them come back to earth and certainly not in this way. I thought the whole thing, I thought maybe Joe's big break was going to come in the middle of the film. And then we spend the back end with him trying to get back. Uh, so I really was surprised by this, and and I think it's hysterical. And it leads to one of the stronger scenes in the film. There are a lot of strong scenes in this movie, but I think one that is going to get glossed over is the scene with Connie in the stairwell, okay? Mm-hmm. Because now the bodies have been swapped. It's very funny. It's slapstick how 22, who's never walked in a human being before, failed her road test, I think she had said. Um, He's got to get her back in the hospital gown. She's talking to the cat. People think they're insane, although it's not all that surprising because it's Manhattan after all. But navigating Manhattan like that, I think it was very smart to to set the story here. It is. I love how they, they addressed people being hangry. Yes. With the pizza. I thought that was great. But you get this scene where now they're back at Joe's apartment and Connie. And this was kind of strange, too, that that Connie would be going for private lessons in Joe's home. I didn't I don't know of many public school teachers that would have a student come to their home for a private lesson. But so be it. It is what it is. Um, She goes for her lesson and instead decides she's going to quit trombone and hand it over because she says trombone is stupid. She's talking to 22, but she thinks she's talking to Joe. And this is where 22 says, no, I like this kid. They're, t- they're the only one that's talking sense. And they go and they have this, this interaction in the hallway where 22 is just being honest. And I think Connie thinks that it's reverse psychology. And the long and the short of it is she ends up not quitting. As frustrated as she is, she's not quitting. That's a great scene for 22. It's better for 22 than it is with Connie, and it's the first time that you see 22 have a genuine learning experience where the wheels start turning in her head, and she starts to realize there's more to this than she thought. And I feel like with all of the, with all of the scenes in this movie that have so much heart, this is the one that's going to be the most underappreciated. I agree. And I'm really glad you bring that up because I think this is such an important scene for kids because I think, I mean, obviously things are a lot different now, but when we were growing up, if I had a hobby, it was always practice, practice, practice. And most kids got fed up when something that they enjoyed doing started to feel like a chore and started to feel like work. But I feel like with our generation, and maybe this was just my personal experience, we were never allowed 
to just give up on it and just quit. It was always work hard. If it's something that you enjoy, keep pursuing it and your hard work is going to pay off one day. Right. I don't feel like that is parenting now. No way. Because (laughs) kids live in the now generation. They have no patience. They're going to either pick something up and they're going to either like it or they'll be successful at it where it comes naturally to them and then they'll stick with it or it's just going to fall by the wayside. So I feel like this is an important scene to demonstrate that you shouldn't just give up on something so easily. Because even if it's not coming naturally to you, but you love it, you should still give it a second chance. And Joe says as much when 22 says, why why didn't she quit? She was going to quit. And he was like, because she's good at it. Because she's good at it. And she should give it a shake. But I like that Pixar explored that because it's two different things. You can be great at something, but not love it. I, yeah. And I think that that's something that a lot of adults struggle with because they're good at something. They find their wheelhouse. They just stick with it until one day they realize it's not making them happy anymore. But in a kid's case, you can love something and not be good at it, but keep trying until you are, until those two things become one and the same. Right. And you kind of find that in between. Exactly. Speaking of our generation looking at newer generations or younger generations... How about stop sending souls through the self, uh, self-absorbed pavilion? <laughs> I love that. And I just wish that they would have played up on that angle a little bit more with these influencers and these trash celebrities that get a Wee or make a X-rated tape, looking at you, Kim Kardashian, and end up becoming a billionaire for your sins. You know what I'm saying? Like... <laughs> I feel I feel like Russell Brand right now in in forgetting Sarah Marshall. A lot of Jason Siegel here. Yeah, I'm very famous for my sins. And I love <laughs> that angle and I wish they would have played up on that a little bit here. Just just even just one scene for the funny because you had no problem having poor Mother Teresa and Abraham Lincoln and uh Muhammad Ali go off the deep end. God, if they would have just found a place where like the soulless, forget a lost soul, but the soulless oh. people that sold their soul for fame, like Chris Kardashian does to her children constantly. I would have loved to have seen that realm just for a minute, just for a laugh. That would have been great. Of all the comparisons we were going to make today, Jason Siegel films were like the least likely that I thought we were going for. But now that he keeps coming up, I don't know. I don't know what to make of that. But yeah, that would have been such an interesting take where where there's an area where you can sell your soul yeah if they do a sequel that would be worth it because i i love this world that they created i'm not saying the film needs a sequel but i feel like there's a lot more that you could do with the great beyond and the great before um but to circle back to what you said too it wasn't just the self-absorbed building there was also the aloof building that she kept feeding them through and i think that that's another very poignant observation yeah definitely one of the stronger scenes in the film that will get its its credit and should get its credit is the barbershop scene it's incredible it's so good now this originally was not in the film but they eventually wrote it into the film at the behest of the screenwriter because he wanted something that was very authentic to the communities that you know he grew up in in his neighborhood and he, and he said you know this is uh this is something that i think a lot of people who are going to watch this film can relate to this 
And so um, they put this scene in. I love the angle of I'm in the chair. When I'm in yes. the chair, I'm the boss. And I love the fact that this comes up later with 22 because it's the first time that she has been the boss. It's the first time that she has had say. And I love the fact that she inadvertently starts getting all of this out of Dez, you know, the barber. Mm -hmm. And he basically says, you know what, it's nice to do something other than just talk about jazz, not knowing that, you know, uh, Joe is in the cat. He thinks he's really talking to Joe. And I thought that that was a really important scene, not just for Dez in 22, but that was a really important scene for Joe. This for Joe is what the stairwell scene is for 22. Exactly. Joe, this is the first time that Joe realized that he had such tunnel vision with his love of jazz. And, and that's great when, when you love something that much, but you are blocking out, and this is where it really starts to explore blocking out your life and the little moments in between that make it worth living and, and the human interaction that makes the world go round. Um, yeah, I don't think you realize until later that the scene is more about Joe because it is such a great scene for 22 also where she she questions Des and she was like, so wait, you didn't want to be, because all that's been drilled into her head is purpose, purpose, purpose. And she's shocked to learn that even though he's a great barber and he loves what he does, that was always not going to, it was not always his path in life. Um, it's such a, a great scene. The animation and the color and the lighting are so brilliant. And what I love most about it is the characters. But at the same time, that sort of bothers me because this is such an integral scene and the characters are so wonderful. And even though they don't have a lot of screen time, they are so fully developed. To me, that should have been the people in the band. Um, Because they give Joe such good advice and... I am not taking away anything with how important this scene is to make the whole film feel authentic to Joe's experience. I get that. But I feel like to have such inspiration coming from the characters, you get it with Dorothea in the scene at the end. But I feel like this should have come from them because they have what Joe wants already. I disagree. I feel like with the band, there's such an age gap between all of them. Yeah. I feel like it would be hard for all of them to relate. And when I think about him in the band, I think about him like he's at work. And, you know, yeah, you can level with people at work and you certainly have a relationship with people you work with. But then, like, when I go to my barber shop, I've been going to the same guys for a long time. It's two guys. I've known them. I've known these two guys for, it's got to be 15 years, almost 20, because they were in one shop and I followed them to their shop when they opened it. I talk to them differently than I talk to the, the people I work with. And the people I work with, I see five days a week. My barber, I see five times a year, maybe six. You know, so to, to have the, the relationship with them, I, like, I, I get what you're saying, but I think the way that they did it was pretty spot on. Well, and you're right, because that is something that makes the film very relatable, too, is that everybody does have that almost therapist relationship with the person that does their hair. It's almost the I same do. Thing. I have it with my hairdresser. It's like it's like having your local bartender. It's the same thing. Believe me, I should know. I should have a medical degree after the 15 years I spent behind the stick. I love, you brought up purpose, you brought up all that before. I love that they differentiate the difference yes. between a spark 
and a purpose because the whole time you're led to believe it's one and the same because I think for a, for a, an average person their whole life they've been led to believe it is one and the same. I love the fact that they address it and they say it, it is not one and the same. They are two completely different things. And that's where Pixar handles this subject matter so brilliantly because I think everybody has sort of been led to believe that they are one and the same and that's why people chase their dreams so hard. And I like that they do create that separation and and you have to start to question, like, what were you really put on this earth for? Mm-hmm. And I think that that gets fleshed out nicely to talk about the scene that you just mentioned with Dorothea Williams after he has his gig with them right now he's gotten the earth pass he's come back from the from the great uh before he has this set he kills it she welcomes him to the band officially it's everything that he wanted and you know he says to her all right so what's next she goes we come back and do the same thing tomorrow and he's just like oh i thought there'd be more and she tells him this great story about the fish the fish that's in the water and he swims up to an older fish and says, I'm here to find the ocean. And the, and the older fish says, you're in the ocean. And he goes, no, I'm in the water. I'm looking for the ocean. He's looking for that bigger, broader spectrum. And that's something that Joe can relate to. And that's, that is at the point in the film, I think, where he has the most self-reflection. And I think that this is a scene... The barbershop scene, you need to tie the film together. This is what makes the film whole, which I know is weird because it's not even the end of the movie. But without this scene, I don't know that you have a complete story. Our friend Lisa Donato Glasner from The Castle Run actually did an amazing write-up on the scene itself and and what it means to the bigger picture. We'll link to that in our show notes because she just had a very... um, very eloquent way of putting it. As she does most of the time. Yes. Well, all um, of the time. Forget most of the time. All of the time. What I love, too, that sort of sets that up before Joe gets his Earth Pass back and says goodbye to 22, they're about to get on the subway, which is a very funny scene because 22 is picking up things and putting them in her mouth that, or Joe's mouth that she absolutely shouldn't. Um, but before they get on, there's the, the performer. And... Yeah. 22 in Joe's body just becomes completely entranced in the music. To me, I agree with you that the fish story is what really ties the movie up. But to me, this is where the message of the film is captured perfectly. And I feel like that's something that with Joe, they didn't necessarily hit on is that if you love something, it doesn't matter the capacity in which you're doing it. You could be performing in a subway or you could be performing at Carnegie Hall and I feel like that's something that was sort of glossed over not just with Joe's character but because you set this in New York and maybe that's something that because we were born and raised here that we feel a little bit differently I feel like there are that that's most people's attitude, especially when you're a creative or you're an artist, is that as long as you get to do it, it doesn't matter what the side hustle is that that you have to put work into to pay the bills. It doesn't matter how big or small a crowd that you're performing for. The fact that you just get to do it and it makes you happy is enough. And I feel like that was one thing 
that I needed from Joe that I didn't get. Oh, yeah, all right. That makes sense. I'll give you that one. Unless do you think that that's maybe what they were going for with Joe's swan song? I think that that's probably what they were trying to do with this. No, I mean, I, no, I think the swan song more than anything else was just a means of him coming to terms with the fact that he's done what he came here to do and it's time to give somebody else an opportunity. And I think that that's, it's, it's a powerful scene cause he's crying as he's playing. I feel like that was, that was more about him accepting his fate than it was anything else. Right. Because you know, he's using that as a device to get back into the zone so that, and, and I guess that's where we've only seen it the two times. Maybe, I need another couple of viewings. I knew what he was trying to do with getting to the zone, but you totally interpreted that differently than I did with that. He's ready to give up. I thought he was only going back to help 22. And I wasn't sure if he knew at that point that that meant he was going to trade his soul for hers. The way that you're describing it, I think that he would have had to know that. Right. Because he's got to give her the earth pass back. Once he gives it up to her, which is what she needs to get back, he's gone. A lot of people were upset, too, that they didn't find out where 22 actually ended up. I think her purpose was helping people. Because when you think about it, all of the moments that she felt alive were when she was actually able to get Joe through to, to what he needed. I kind of like that 22's purpose was open-ended and we don't really see where she goes because it's it's not about her and we know that she's going to be okay. But I love this idea that people are latching onto that she becomes Riley from Inside Out. I think that's brilliant. I think it works story-wise and I feel like these films are so similar with the animation, I I totally see them coupled together now. It could be. Um, I feel like 22... I think if what you're saying is accurate, and I believe it is, that her purpose is to help people, I don't necessarily know that that's Riley. Because um, I just don't think you get that out of Riley in Inside Out. I think sometimes people dig for things to tie movies together. Um, it's possible. Like I, I'm fine if it is, but I mean, I, I think if I want to sit there and stretch it and say, oh, she gets silly with the lollipops and the leaves and the bagels and the pizza, that's Riley. It's like, that's kind of a stretch. Um, I, I suppose it's possible. I don't know that we're ever going to really know where they tie these movies in. I don't think they're going to give it up. Right, because there's a million internet theories that all of these Pixar movies live in the same world. And Pixar does give us that. They'll put the Pizza Planet truck in every single thing. They do here, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, which we'll talk about when we talk about the animation. Um, you know, they have planted those seeds, but I don't know that they are ever going to confirm it. The movie does end abruptly. You talked about it before. Um, I, and it did It did upset a lot of people that wanted to see, well, what happens to 22? Well, what happens to Joe? This didn't bother me. I thought it was okay that the end of the movie can be left up to my own interpretations and I can sort of draw my own conclusions. There are times where I don't want that, 
But I think in this film, it's entirely appropriate. I think it would have been a disservice to the film if they gave us a very concrete ending. Because that's the point. We are supposed to question it. It's supposed to be a look in the mirror. And it's supposed to be about one day at a time. You want to move on to characters here? Sure. All right. So let's start with Joe Gardner, played by Jamie Foxx. I mean, what do you want me to tell you? It's it's a good character. I think he was a good lead. I feel Jamie Foxx as an actor was better than Joe Gardner. I feel like other... Th- I mean, there are only a handful of actors that I think you could have cast in this role that would have done it as well. I feel like anybody else, the character would have fallen a little flat, and I don't know that we would have really felt bad for them because Jamie Foxx is able to balance the drama and the comedy very well, and he just gave him so much life. Absolutely. Um I think I love Jamie Foxx and what he did for the character more than I love the character itself. I mean, here's the thing. Joe is not supposed to be this big character with crazy personality. He's not going to be a Remy. He's not going to be a Joy. Because he almost has to be sort of boring, A, to make him relatable, and B, so that they can set up this idea of why he's so desperate to get back. Yeah, 22, Tina Fey. That's as perfect as Jamie Foxx is as Joe Gardner. It's a great character. I think at times she outshines Joe, which I don't think is a hindrance to the film. I think in many ways they kind of did that intentionally because they did want to bring him out of this mundane lifestyle and they did want to show him that there is more than just him being in the zone constantly. Oh, I absolutely think that she was supposed to do that because we're supposed to be in Joe's seat. So if he's too over the top, it's going to be distracting for us. We're not going to relate to him. For And I think that's it too. It's It forces 22 to ask all of the right questions. Yes. Uh, but I, I love, I mean, I love Tina Fey to begin with, but I love the portrayal here. I love the idea of the sort of, well, she's not a soulless soul. She's just a bodiless soul. Um, and she's not fully formed yet. At times, she's almost like a child in the way that she is so inquisitive and the way that she does throw these temper tantrums and only wants to do what she wants to do and annoys people like Mother Teresa. But at the same time, they don't go too over the top with that either because then she comes off like our favorite, the all-knowing quit machine kid. Mm-hmm. And she can't. you can't make her unlikable either. We have to be rooting for her to get to the body. We have Moonwind, played by Graham Norton. I like the makeup of the character more than the actual character. Not that Graham Norton didn't do a great job, but I love that they took this idea of a free spirit and they gave him this deadhead tie-dye feel. And I think if you think about Free Spirit, this is the kind of person that you're thinking of. And I think that it plays, I think that this plays to the strength of the film as a whole. I agree. I love that they touched on this and that they gave your average person a means of getting to this other world just completely of their own volition and and not because they passed away or they're they're in a coma and that you can just achieve this yourself. And I, I, 
I like that they went with sort of the free spirit hippie thing as opposed to maybe like a psychic medium or something like that. Although I feel like they Pixar could have had a lot of fun if they went the route of a psychic medium and, and just made maybe like a, a really annoying character. Yeah. Somebody that's um, with, uh, like a sorcerer's apprentice where you kind of have the Chris Angel knockoff, right? Like that was timely for its time. But I wonder if that then puts a time on this film, like if there's a time stamp on this film, because these mediums, this is like such a thing right now. I don't know if this is going to be a thing forever. Right. But it would have been, you're right, like a cheap knockoff of the Jerry's because they are the otherworldly beings and they run the show. But yeah, if you had like a sub character, especially because they are going through the lost souls trying to save them, they are sort of working against what the Jerry's have put in place. Mm -hmm. Now juxtaposed against the Jerry's, you have Terry played by Rachel House. I don't think this character is necessary. I think it was enough that you were racing against time. I don't think you needed this additional layer of having an antagonist because there's no real villain in the movie. I don't think this character is necessary. Well, I certainly don't think you need you needed a villain because this is a story of man versus himself and, and versus time. Um, but I think Terry's hysterical. I, I think even though there's not much of a a storyline there, I think it's just a good bit of comic relief. I especially love when Terry goes to Earth and he's trying to find Joe and track down the soul and he's sort of sniffing him out like a bloodhound, how he's tracing all the steps and how they animate him going through. I think that was so cool. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the animation, for me, the animation was better than the actual character because I felt like you had enough comic relief with Tina Fey. It's not to say the character wasn't funny, though, but the movie could have existed without the character in it. He's he's kind of a nudge. I think it's hysterical. Mm-hmm. Felicia Rashad, uh, Rashad is in the film as Joe's mom, Libba Gardner. Um, and this is interesting to me because she's Mrs. Huxtable. You know, yeah. she was always like that really great motherly type. And here she's stone cold, but she does it well. And that extreme from one to the other, I think, showcases her acting chops more than anything else. I love every scene that takes place in her tailor shop because of her and her relationship with with her friends. And they're all, you know, sort of being overly involved in Joe's life. I think it's hysterical. But yeah, she really, she grounds those scenes. Mm-hmm. Angela Bassett. Scene stealer. Dorothy Williams. She's great. She's fantastic. I don't, I don't, there's nothing else to say. She's great. She's iconic. I love her. And I, I really do love the Dorothea Williams character. Yeah. I like the way that she came off sort of standoffy and you need to impress me. The only thing that I sort of wish that they would have done... Because Joe is so obsessed. I wish they would have shown that she had a little little bit more commercial success. Like, Joe knows who she is. He knows her name. It seems like she's very popular in his community. Because they do a very good job of, like, sticking within those same couple of blocks in the city. And it does seem like everybody sort of knows each other. But if they would have 
maybe just shown that she either had like a hit record or why he wants to be a part of this so bad. Because I feel like there's sort of a disconnect from him just wanting to play at the club and wanting to play with her. I feel like if I know this is his big shot, but I feel like if if she had more she needs a little bit more credibility because otherwise, why do we care so much that he's bending over backwards to have this gig Mm -hmm. other than it's just his shot? I think they needed to build her up like like in Ernesto de la Cruz. You needed to give her you needed to give him more of a reason to want to play with her specifically sure let's talk about the animation here um i think that this is some of the best animation we've ever seen from pixar not even so much in the human beings um i think in the otherworldly beings it's spectacular i think the world that they built is spectacular But as weird as this may seem to me, it's the small details. It's the barbershop. It's the wood grain on the piano in his apartment. It's the wood grain on the piano in the classroom. This, to me, is more impressive than almost anything else that they did in this film. Not to downplay the rest of it, but the minutia that you'd think they'd gloss over because they created these amazing otherworldly locations, but they still took the time to do this. That's what impresses me the most. And the way that they create this balance between the ethereal part of it and New York city, I think is done so brilliantly because I, I kind of went back and forth with this and I, I was like, did this really need to take place in New York? Like, could it have been anywhere? I think you could have done it really in any music city, Um, like a New Orleans, like a Chicago, where jazz is very big. Um, Because they didn't necessarily use New York as a character. Like, it's not like it plays such a huge role in driving the story forward. Um. You know, I know the writer is from New York City and you get those moments on the subway that are very authentic to Manhattan. But I feel like with the animation, they did a great job of creating the city feel, but it could have sort of taken place anywhere. With that said, I absolutely love the detail Um, I like that it could have taken place anywhere because they're not focusing on the Empire State Building. They're not focusing on the Statue of Liberty. It's just these few blocks that he lives in. Uh, So I think that that's what makes it relatable to everyone. But I think that they did such an amazing job of the details, like especially when he goes and takes that slice of pizza and, and, you know, when he's in cat form and he brings it over to his body. Um, I think that's so well done. Uh, like you said, the barbershop is is excellent. Um, the jazz club, the night that he performs, is absolutely incredible. The lighting is gorgeous. Um, what they did, they they used uh, the composer or one of the composers, John Batiste's hands, and and they used that as their live action reference to animate Joe when he's playing. And I I think that that was definitely something. Uh, it, it was worth paying attention to that kind of detail because it does look amazing. Um, as much as I do 
love how this city look is juxtaposed against the great beyond and the great before. Here's my unpopular opinion. I think there's a great, as much as a, a, a great balance as there is, I feel like they could have done a bit more with the great before because it's just a lot of wide open space and it should be because you're you don't have humans up there there is no architecture they're discovering their personality you you know you don't have and or need all of these earthly things but I feel like I'm sort of vindicated in saying this because when they go into the hall of everything literally everything is in there all of your Pixar Easter eggs are in this one scene. And I was talking about the Pizza Planet truck before, but everything else, like the the Pixar light, the Lotso ball, they're all shoved into this scene. And that's where I feel like they could have done a little bit more with the great before because you're just jamming it into this one little portion. So I feel like they could have maybe just built it up or or maybe had it like mirror earth in some ways with with the buildings sort of like like a parallel alternate universe exactly and then that's sort of how you go about discovering where you are i also unpopular opinion i feel like the mystics and the ship that they're on don't aesthetically fit like i like how the color is it it pops off of the dark background but I feel like that doesn't necessarily fit with the rest of the film. I mean, I guess you had to get them from point A to point B. It's more interesting than watching them walk, although fans of The Lord of the Rings would disagree with me on that. <laughs> um, I mean, it didn't didn't bother me. I don't know what else. I mean, I guess you could put them on anything, and maybe that's the problem. You could literally put them on anything. I, I, I mean, I thought it was fine. I guess, well, this is something that bothers me about Inside Out, too, is, again, a lot of negative space. And when you compare that to something like Wreck-It Ralph and how each video game is so detailed, that's the level that I'm expecting. And because you're Pixar, I feel like it should be there. Mm. Um, You want to move on to music here? Another unpopular opinion. Uh Uh-oh. Go ahead. For a film that is so jazz-centric, that should have been the thing that we were most wowed by. And and the music is amazing, don't get me wrong. But I feel like for a film that uses music as, as Joe's vocation, it should have played a bigger role. Meaning actually hearing music. And it really doesn't. He talks about it more than he actually does it in this film. And I think that's sort of a big miss. And I hate saying that because I know that they spent so much time so carefully animating him when he plays. But when it gets to the big number, the things that I love about that sequence and the things that I love about that performance are the color and the light. And I like them more than I do the music because it's it's just like a montage. It's I know this movie, it, this is not supposed to be a musical. None of the Pixar movies really are. 
They're scored well. They have great songs, but nobody's bursting out into song and they shouldn't. But here you had the chance to have it play a bigger role. And it just doesn't do it as good as something like 101 Dalmatians where Roger's a songwriter and they they sprinkle the music in and out and it, it plays right into the story. This doesn't, I feel like it just doesn't go hand in hand. I will agree with you that the music doesn't play as big a role in the film as you think it would. Um, because you're right, he does talk about it more than actually performing it. But I think the music that is in the film is spectacular. I think the score is great. I think at times the score works to drive a scene home. And as much as I would have loved to have seen more of it, I don't know that I necessarily needed to see more of it because the movie is not about music. It's about self-reflection and finding yourself. So I think if, if they made a mistake, it's that they played it up like it was going to be this big musical film like a Coco, right? Because yes. Co now Coco is more a musical than anything else, but there are times where Miguel will just strum his guitar and it doesn't go into anything other than him just strumming his guitar. That does not happen here. Right, and I think that that's a big flaw because, and it's like what I was talking about with that subway scene. If Joe loves music so much, then just play it. It shouldn't have to be for anybody but yourself. And I feel like that's something that would have grounded the character more and and just maybe been a little bit more entertaining from the musical aspect, especially because, too, it John Batiste did all of the jazz composition and then they had uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross of Nine Inch Nails do the composition. And I was super stoked to hear that they were involved because... I, I've never been a Nine Inch Nails fan, but I love everything that they've ever done when it comes to film. Um, I think the score for The Social Network was brilliant. That was when they first really like broke out of their their musical pigeonhole. Um, but here, I feel like you didn't get a lot of the score other than the jazz. And you, you shouldn't because the jazz had to be the hero as far as the music goes. But I would have liked to hear a bit more from them as well. Okay. So final thoughts. I think that the animation is amazing. I think the score is great. I think the story is relatable. It's not the tearjerker that I expected, and I'm perfectly fine with that, mind you. I didn't need to have a breakdown on Christmas. Um, I think that this is one of Pixar's all-time bests. I do hold it in very high regard. I don't want a sequel. I don't need a sequel, but I expect a sequel because they left it so open-ended. And because there's so many different ways that you can go about it, I think they are going to do it. I hope they don't. Because I think that as a one-off, this movie was almost perfect I, it's a pretty seamless film and i don't think you need to elaborate on it any further than you already have i agree with you i think that the story is incredible and and it's pretty much as close to perfect as you come but i feel like people are not appreciating it for all of the things that we talked about at the top of the show is that you were expecting this film to 
be tied up in a nice little bow like Pixar often does. And it's not that it's open ended. And I think that people are maybe too uncomfortable with the look in the mirror. And I get that because to me, that's why you go to the movies. I think it's because you are looking for something that mirrors your your life and that's why you gravitate to a certain film or a certain character but you do want that closure at the same time or you're you're going I think that's why we we just look to movies in general is because you want to not only see yourself in them but you want to sort of maybe organize your own thoughts and see that reflected back to you. I mean, for, for me, that's always been the appeal. So when you get something like this that is open-ended, like we said, and is a slice of life and sort of does pose more questions than answers, I don't think people are prepared for it. But I think that that's where this movie is a complete success is because it does make you think it does present it in a digestible way, albeit maybe not for young children. Um, and I applaud Pixar for tackling that, for for actually, you know, taking the shot and making it for adults and giving them something to really chew on. Um, so for as much as I've, I've sort of, I don't want to say, because I don't think I was that harsh, I haven't really blasted the animation and the music. I mean... Taking that aside, I really love the story and and I, I love what they created here. And I hope that for the people who don't dig it as much that they really will give it another chance. Yeah. And I think that it's natural to compare this film to Inside Out. Um, I think that both films ultimately accomplish their goal. I think Inside Out does some things better than this does. I think that this does some things better than Inside Out. And I think that you can learn an awful lot watching both of them. I think a kid gets more out of Inside Out where an adult gets a lot out of Inside Out because they can self-reflect, but this one's going to hit closer to home for an adult. Right, and if you're going to lump them together in any capacity, maybe 22 does not become Riley, but this is how you should compare them in your mind, is that Inside Out is the kid's version, Soul is the adult version. Now that's our review of the movie, but we did throw it out there on our social media that we wanted to hear from you. And we did get an email from a loyal listener, Alexandra, and she gave us her thoughts on Pixar's Soul. Alexandra writes, like the soothing notes of jazz music that accompanies this film, I felt that Soul was pleasant to watch. It was perfect to see after the frenzy of opening presents. No real complaints about it, though I'm not a fan of jazz. My only nitpicky complaint is that I don't know if Tina Fey's voice was right for 22. Curious what other viewers thought. Yeah, and you guys can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can also email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first a quick break. If you're thinking of booking a trip to a Disney destination, you have to contact Jackie Zalezi from Magical Vacation Planner. My husband and I recently celebrated our 10-year wedding anniversary and wanted to go on a trip just the two of us. Jackie suggested Disneyland, knowing we'd never been and I had been dreaming of going. I am so thankful for her suggestion, as it was the most magical way to celebrate. Jackie got us a fantastic deal, but still constantly checked for discounts to make sure we were guaranteed the lowest price. 
Having recently visited Disneyland, she was a great source for helpful information and had suggestions for everything, including meals, Max Pass, even places to visit in Los Angeles on our non-park day. Upon arrival at our hotel, we experienced the easiest check-in because Jackie had taken care of everything. Throughout our trip, Jackie was in constant contact, making sure we had everything we needed and answering any questions we had. Our vacation was perfect. All thanks to Jackie Zalezi from Magical Vacation Planner. So if you would like some completely free assistance planning your Disney trip, you can reach out to me through any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email me at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. News of the week, and it is exciting if you are a Disney Parks guest, if you are a Disney Parks fan, if you are a Disney Parks anything. Park hopping is officially back. We're not even close to our trip, and I'm so excited. I'm excited for everyone who gets to do it. Yeah, so basically how it works is you need a reservation for your first park of the day. After 2 o'clock, they are allowing park hopping without a reservation to the second park. However, what they're doing is they have cast members stationed at the buses that are going to scan your tickets and magic bands just to confirm that you have a valid park ticket that day. And that's how they're letting you onto the bus. And I think in a way that's probably how they're also monitoring how many people are in the parks without a reservation. That way they know when to cap it. I'm sure they have to. And it's smart because nothing would be worse than, let's say you're leaving Magic Kingdom to go to Epcot for dinner or whatever, if you want to go enjoy the Festival of the Arts. Um, what happens if you get to Epcot and then they're at capacity now? So I'm sure that there is a bit of monitoring the attendance involved with that. Right. Let us know if you guys have done it. Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. Again, email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week. Don't forget to like our show on your podcast platform of choice and leave us a rating and a review. Make sure you share with your friends. And uh, as always, thank you guys so much. We look forward to doing it again next week. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.